your Bible with you tonight or want to use the Pew Bible, the text is in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, or begins there anyway. Ecclesiastes 6. We become familiar with sayings that try to alleviate our suffering or adversity for us. You know, we talk about um, making lemonade out of lemons, things like this, finding the silver lining. Um, God works in mysterious ways, sayings like this. But when we've experienced true suffering, genuine adversity, trite sayings tend to be insufficient. Sometimes the lemonade is sour. Sometimes a, a silver lining can't be found. Sometimes we need more than that. Solomon has begun to reflect on how the difficult things about the world and the tendency we all have towards sinfulness affect the outlook of the children of God in particular. He's gone from oppression into the house of God, back to oppression again, and the vanity of pursuing wealth at the expense of everything else, right? The world is filled with mixed messages that are all competing to hold sway over our lives and over our outlook. There's so much we believe about life that we've never even questioned. There are just default assumptions and conclusions that we have or that we develop over time. The scripture, however, pushes us towards a perspective on life that is not shaped by what happens to us, good or bad, but by what is true regardless of these things. Solomon teaches us how to have that perspective where he's pushing us towards that perspective um, in Ecclesiastes 7 here by giving us a series of proverbs that are meant to help expose our default assumptions about life. There are assumptions we have about life that drive us to do things that oppress others, that drive us to pursue money, to pursue gain at the cost of our relationship with God and one another, or that drive us to become bitter about the things that have happened to us, the conditions in which we live, the things we so often assume are bad may not be what we first thought they were. Since it is God who has structured our world the way it is, we can learn to have peace even in adversity. The Bible doesn't lessen the reality of our adversity. It doesn't cheapen it. It doesn't give us an easy way out of it. It teaches us how to have genuine peace in the midst of it. But Solomon's wisdom is not another band-aid for our souls. It's not a, another group of trite sayings that don't grasp the pain we're feeling Remember, as you read Ecclesiastes, that it is Jesus Christ himself who is the personification of God's wisdom. He teaches us to see the world properly, to understand things for what they actually are, to see the truth, beloved. And in him and in him alone, we'll find rest for our souls. Let me pray one more time here and then we'll begin. Father. I ask tonight for clarity in what I say and in what is heard. Lord, I ask for a miracle of your grace to accomplish this for the speaker and for the listener. Father, help me remember that I'm also a listener tonight. May your Holy Spirit move within us, teach us the truth, show us your Son, that we might see how this text bears witness to our life which is found and hidden in Christ with you. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So Solomon here, we're going to find at the end of chapter 6, what he's been saying has led him to present a problem, so to speak. In the last few verses of chapter 6, that is, reflecting on oppression and unrighteousness and injustice and the greed and vanity of even honestly seeking gain, but having it blow up in your face, and it's almost as if he's burnt out by the time he gets to verses 10 through 12, it creates a pessimistic picture of life on the earth, even for God's children, church-going people living in the midst of these things. So listen to him in these next verses. Pick it up in 6.10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So 
Solomon's reflections have brought him to the realization that God has structured the world to be a certain way under the sun. God is assumed as the source of all this here in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Well, by whom? Who named the world? Who has established the order here is the question. And, and when there's, and it's, sorry, it's God. And when there's something greater than man, more powerful than man, ordering and structuring the world under the sun, man is unable to change it. He can't fix it. In fact, in verse 11, Solomon is saying the more he tries, the more he pontificates, the more he theorizes and works to fix it, the more vain, the more worthless and fleeting, like a vapor, he becomes. So what is the advantage of trying to figure everything out is what Solomon is asking. Even if you do, you can't change it, right? So it's not that Solomon teaches life is utterly hopeless and meaningless in that way, and that's the end of it, just die, right? He, he teaches us that trying to fix the hopelessness and the meaninglessness with the things of the world is vanity. Figuring it out only leads you to the knowledge that you can't fix it. We need salvation. We need rescue. We need an escape. We're talking about going to Mars now, right? Going to the moon, trying to colonize other planets. We'll, we'll try anything. Look at verse 12 again. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Ponder that question. How do you know what you think is good is actually good in a, in a vain world where we live under the sun? That's such a powerful biblical idea. You see how he's challenging our default assumptions, our presuppositions? Who knows what is actually good in such a world? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows what is actually good? That's an amazing question. Maybe we need to reevaluate our presuppositions and assumptions and conclusions. Maybe we aren't as well aware of what is good or bad under the sun as we think we are. Maybe we need a different perspective. Maybe we need to learn to talk to ourselves instead of listen to ourselves. We have no idea how things will be after us. Do you know what he's saying in that sentence? Everything is not so fixed and firm that you can tell the future. The way it has gone does not tell you necessarily the way it is going to go in the future. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We don't always know what's going to happen. We can't always be sure of the end. We can't always be sure that because things have gone a certain way before they will again. We don't know that because things have been bad, they will always be bad. We don't know that because things have been good, they will always, they will always be good. So in other words, don't be superstitious. Right? Don't be superstitious. And Christians can be very superstitious about Scripture and about truth. Right? Social media has revealed this, that many Christians believe, you, many, you can literally, you can just say things and that you want to be true and think they'll be true. How many people post things like, uh, don't be worried today, God has already said that, um, you know, you're, you're favored today and you're going, things are going to clear up and they're going to get better. And, and when, where did he say that? Right? Why? If, if you share this post... If you say amen, right, it's so funny, right, uh, I'm not afraid to say Jesus is Lord. Well, nobody said you were, right, so just relax. And if, if you share this amen, you, you know, there'll be a thousand dollars. And we, we, we believe this. We believe this. We, we, we become so attached to our assumptions, our presuppositions, our traditions, right, the way it's been. That we have no biblical perspective for the way things are or the way things might be. Neither our joys or our sorrows define the future. We ought to cling loosely to our conclusions, beloved. We aren't really in a position to always be dogmatic. This world is not set up for understanding. We, we need to embrace this. This world is not set up for understanding. Maybe... We need to learn to see with different eyes. To help us pursue this again, Solomon takes the next 14 verses in chapter 7 to challenge 
what we might call the normal flow of thought or what is normally thought as good, normally thought as bad. And 714, when we get there, connects to 612 by basically asking the same question or raising the same issue. So he starts there and then he thinks and then he goes back to it. We don't know what will be after us. This is forming his thought here. Pick it up in 7 one. I'll read down through verse 12, actually. Now, just notice this. This is just proverb after proverb for 12 verses. All right? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Again, I've been to a funeral. I've been to a birth. How is that true? Right? Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will Lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Just what that implies about the world is an amazing thing. For the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. No, no, no. I've been on vacation. The beginning is better than the ending. Right? And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Oh, man. This this is how Americans talk. Oh, the good old days. And it used to be so good. It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon seems here like he wants to disparage laughter and mirth for a while. And he does, but he's not arguing for despair. That's not the alternative to laughter and mirth. Elsewhere and often, Solomon commends joy, right? Commends us to have joy in our lots. He actually wants us to enjoy life under the sun as best we can. But he's been pondering the world's evil and the unavoidable reality of suffering here. And here's the reality. Not every mood needs lightened. Sometimes it's good to sit and ponder what is hard and not be so quick to move past it. We're so quick to want to move on from focusing on what is not pleasant. But here the preacher means to keep us there for a while, not to leave us in sorrow or in emptiness, but to give us perspective. The focus here is on the things that normally break us under the sun and make us think things are bad and God is against us maybe. So here and in our own hearts, for example, what are we often told? That money and material possessions are more valuable than who we are, for example. So we sell ourselves. We compromise ourselves. We give ourselves away for trinkets. We spend money we don't have to impress people we don't know. But wisdom says a good name is better than precious ointment. The one who is faithful and humble in the world will get overlooked by those who sparkle under the sun, right? And being overlooked like that can make us believe God isn't with us either. That he's not aware we exist, but he is. It's not always bad to not have what shines, right? It's it's not always bad that the only thing you have is your character and your name and your reputation. You say, I can't spend it. Well, that's, that's the point. The Bible is telling you, listen, it's better to have this than it is to have that. See, he's, he's challenging the world's default assumptions here. The preacher is pointing our eyes to God who sees rather than man who sees. 
We're also told here that life here is all there is. So if that's the case, get all you can. But the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now just for a second, again, ponder how that can be true and what it means that it is. Right? The only way that's true is if Jesus is true. Right? That the day of death is better than the day of birth. Again, when you, when, beloved, when you think about the sorrow of death, of standing at the coffin of somebody you love so much, and to hear the Bible say, listen, that's better. What you're feeling in that moment is better than when this person was born. Right? I, I, it's so hard to grasp. It's so hard to grasp. I was just, look, I, I know I bring this up a lot, but I can't, it is what it is. I was just, uh, I saw some pictures and caught a picture of my little brother and my, uh, that passed and my other little brother and my sister and I, we, I was about 14 and it still is so sad. I hate it. You know, it just, it's just, death is so hard when you love somebody and the Bible comes along and says, listen, trust me. Right. The day of death is better than the day of birth. But then when I when you pull back from it, you can begin to see how that's true. If, if, if you can learn to see with different eyes for my brother, it was much better than the day of his birth. Much better. God is not asking me to not feel sad. He's not telling me to 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 laugh at the coffin. That's not what the scripture says. The script, this is God teaching, pastoring us through Solomon. Trust me, this is better than that. Why? Because here, under the sun, you don't want this. You don't want to stay here forever. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And I think we can look at one and two together. I think in some sense, birth is like precious ointment. It's wonderful. It smells sweet. It holds all kind of potential. But precious ointment doesn't reveal character. How good a person looks, how good a person smells, right? What they have, it doesn't reveal who they are. Death reveals the life that came before it, right? Death does that. Birth doesn't do that. The end of a person's life is much more a measure of things than the beginning was. It's the obituary, not the birth announcement that truly begins to reveal who a person was. Endings tell us more than beginnings can. And this, this, this is the Bible's path to wisdom, to perspective. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, the house of mourning. And the living will lay it to heart. They will not try to avoid this. Or thinking about it. Instead, they'll lay it to heart. Beloved, the sooner we come to terms with our own death, the wiser and happier life we might live. The living ought to lay death to heart. And again, notice his reasoning in verse 2 for why it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because it's the end of all mankind. Everyone is going to die. There's a song by the Flaming Lips. That's the name of the group. It's not my fault. And that they, they, it's such a beautiful song. Did you realize that you have the most beautiful face? It's such a lovely song. But then he says, did you realize that everyone you love will die? And you hear that and you think, oh, okay, thanks. But, but the Bible says you'll lay that to heart. You ought to lay that to heart. God just has a different perspective on the world than we do. I mean, it is what it is. I could stand up here and try to explain it for an hour. It is what it is. Right? It's just true, according to Him. Ponder your own life, beloved. Think about who you are. Solomon means for us to live, but biblical wisdom says we can't live well until we accept the fact that we're going to die. Humankind is bent on living forever. We are bent on staying alive. Go go on at any cost. Just keep going, stay alive, don't die. Now, just think about for a minute how that affects how even believers think about, for example, mission to hard places. If we had a 20-year-old young lady in our church, for example, who came forward one Sunday and said, I believe that God is calling me to North Korea to be a missionary. 
And so I should sell everything I have, raise funds, and go, and I'm asking for your support. Do you know what we would probably do? Try to talk her out of it. Why? You go over there, you're going to get killed. Jesus didn't call us to stay. He called us to go. Right? We resist what will kill us. And, and look, in one sense, there's wisdom, right? I mean, absolutely. In another sense, how long is it wisdom to try to avoid death? Especially if, if in that, if, if that is how you wanted to go. You know, and, and again, we, we'd say, well, you, you, you have family, you have kids. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what, what's reality? What's true? We are conditioned to stay alive. We're conditioned to preserve, conditioned not to take risks. And it's like, I, I, I get that in one sense. I get it. But, but in another sense, it, it's like it, it, if we lay death to heart, imagine how freeing that is. Especially when it comes to things like mission. Look at three and four here. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. So Solomon is pushing us beyond feelings. Right? In what sense is sorrow better than laughter? Well, not in the way it feels, but that's not what he's after. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What? Wait a minute. Right? How is that true? How does sorrow make my heart Glad, right? The sadness of face makes the heart glad. He's not saying it's better to be sad all the time. He's saying it's better to face sadness head on rather than always trying to avoid it and get away from it and take to heart what sadness teaches us about the fragility of our own lives. Take that to heart. It's just amazing when you start getting into Scripture that it, it just, God just blows up everything we think. He just does it again and again and again. And, and look, notice here Solomon wants us to have glad hearts. That's what he's arguing for. He's simply challenging how we think our hearts will be glad. True gladness doesn't come from foolishness or forgetfulness about it. True gladness comes from facing the truth head on rather than trying to beat it and get around it. One of my favorite movies of all time, top ten, absolutely phenomenal movie. I watch it whenever it's on TV. It doesn't matter where in the movie it is. If it's on, I'm watching it. Open Range with Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner. It is go out tonight, get the movie, watch it, and when it's over, listen, watch it again. It's phenomenal. It's so good. The two characters, there's a scene where their characters, Boss and Charlie, that's Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner, they're talking to a man in this town whose sons, who he and his sons have a business. I can't remember exactly what they do, but uh, the town where they are is under the oppressive hand of a wealthy rancher who holds his power in that town by threat and by strong army people. He's a horrible guy. Boss and Charlie ended up in this town by chance, kind of, and they want to free the town from this man. This man is evil. Uh, and the guy says, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to help, but, you know, what am I supposed to do? What are you expecting me to do? Fight? I'll get killed and my sons will be killed. And Charlie Postaway says to him, this is phenomenal. He says, you might not know this, but there's things that gnaw at a man worse than dying. That's a phenomenal line. That's a phenomenal line. There are worse things for you than to die. Much worse things. Beloved, I think I might have mentioned it even this morning. Jesus does not promise us we will avoid death. That's not what salvation is. Some will. The people that are living when he returns, of course. But for the most part, he doesn't promise we'll avoid death. He, he promises us that he'll raise us up from it. Now, if that's the case, get there sooner. Right? The goal is not to survive. I, I want to stress that. I want to stress that to myself. The goal is not to survive. The goal is to leave. That's what makes this true. Do you see what he's doing? He's talked about how horrible it is under the sun for six chapters now. So, duh, right? Get out of here, right? If, if we can realize that, we can begin to come to terms with what he's saying in chapter 7, right? It's, it's obviously not a call to suicide. It's not a call to 
uh, irresponsibility or anything like that. He's talking about perspective. He's pushing us to the realization of this fact and its implications for everyday life. That the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. That death is better than birth. All these things. Do you want to have a truly glad heart? The Bible's telling you how. Stop ignoring or trying to get around your mortality. It's better to be rebuked and challenged by wisdom than it is to live where you're never challenged. Right? That's, that's what he's talking about in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what is he saying? Look, it's better to be rebuked and challenged by wisdom than it is to live where you're never challenged, never pushed, singing songs like a fool, trying to drink or spend or kiss your sadness away. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. How can that, why would that be true? Right? You, you mean to tell me it's better to be challenged than it is to have a good time? Well, yes. Yes. You can get lost in laughter and mirth and foolishness. You can forget everything important in laughter and mirth and foolishness. And we want to move very quickly to it. How many times have you been in a situation where a group of people are talking and it's heavy and somebody cracks a joke and says, I just wanted to lighten the mood. Right? Because we can't stay there. We can't. Like, oh, stop thinking about the hard things. Stop thinking about sad things. Get away from this. And the Bible's telling you, don't be so quick. Don't be so quick to move on from the things that make you think about sorrow. Look at verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Thorns burn very fast. They can start a fire very easily, but they're very easily distinguishable fuel. That's how the laughter of fools is. Solomon is saying a lot of sparks, a lot of noise, but easily burned up and gone. The answer to healing the sorrow and despair in our hearts is not to ignore death. It's not to ignore what is challenging. It's not to ignore mortality or difficulty. That's not the path to gladness. Maybe when we read those amazing stories of courage in the face of martyrdom over the centuries from our brothers and sisters, it's because God finally let them in on the secret of death. And maybe in that moment he gives grace to see this is way better than staying. Then we find, however, that the wise aren't safe under the sun either. Beloved, look at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. I think the point he's driving out here is that using oppression or extortion, as he's been talking about, to get gain, makes even the wise into fools eventually. Anyone so tempted by riches, which again are only good for this life, that they would hurt others and use them to secure them, are on a path to madness and corruption. What makes the person obsessed with wealth so dangerous to other people? What is it about their perspective that makes them so dangerous? They've forgotten that they are going to die. They've forgotten that this is not all there is. You see the inherent danger in that to yourself and to others. If that's your perspective, this is all there is. I have to get everything I can now. Everything becomes expendable. Everything, even people. Solomon not only cares for those who are oppressed, we find then, he would also like to keep people from believing that by having the power and the means to get gain, that's the way to find happiness. That's the way to find gladness. In verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. In other words, I think he's saying here, the end product, in light of verse 7, the end product or the outcome is better than the beginning. In other words, it's, it's better to come to the end of our pursuits, not having hurt others, not having compromised our character, than it is to get what we want at all costs. In other words, patience and realism are better than passion and pride. If verse 8 is true, then it simply reiterates his message in verses 1 through 3, doesn't it? Death is better than birth when we haven't lived for this life only. When we live by faith in Jesus, not in love with or deceived by the lure of this world, our death offers so much more than our birth. It gets us out. Or what's the alternative here? You've been talking about gladness, what is better, because your perspective is made by Christ, it's built by His wisdom. What is the alternative to this? 
you could live with your eyes so fixed on the world that you become frantic and generally angry. Right? He talks like anger is the result or the fruit of being fixed on this life only. But he talks about it generally. What if that's what anger was? Right? What if that's really what anger was? The result of feeling like this is all there is. And that the beginning is better than the ending. And so the closer you get to the ending, the worse it gets. And the madder you get and the more frantic you get. You see what he's doing here? Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger is presented here as the opposite of wisdom. What's the point of anger? Right? Where does it come from? What's the end game? Now, I know there are times when anger is not only appropriate, it's righteous, but I would say we are very quick to call our anger righteous indignation. It might be wiser to realize we, we probably can't read our own anger so precisely, right? That what we're really mad about is the offense against God. Uh, maybe, maybe, or you just don't like somebody and they annoy you. And so we excuse our anger by trying to call it righteous. It could be, but it's better to just trust in Jesus about what he's made clear should make us angry. Because anger lodges, it resides, it's the default position. Where? In the heart of fools. If we are constantly angry, we are foolish. That's a sobering verse. That even in light of all the difficulty and evil in the world, it is not wise to remain in a state of anger about it. In 5.8, he told us specifically not to be amazed at the existence of oppression and unrighteousness in the world. What does being perpetually angry, even about sin, do to our hearts towards other people? It's it's. Among all the things it is, it's forgetting the gospel. Why are other sinners so angry at other sinners? It's like we think you could stop that if you wanted to. You could quit being like that. The leopard can, or the, the, the cheetah can change its spots. The Ethiopian can change the color of his skin. Wait, I thought we didn't believe that. And we just look at people like, stop, just quit it. Just quit it. See, we, we talk like we don't know what it's like to be captive to our flesh. Right? Yes, we do. None of us should ever be in the position that, that you're just constantly angry. It's not wisdom. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. In other words, anger is not the perspective of the faithful. It's not where to remain. So many Christians today think it's so honorable and valuable and relevant To stay in this constant state of frustration and anger, either at the world's evil or at all the world's injustices. The liberal side, the conservative side. But anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger is not the way to resist the evils and injustices in our world. And when we're taken over by our passions, we will become the very thing we hope to stamp out. Right? That's a truism. There are people right now that in the name of tolerance would like to kill you. And like to silence your ability to speak or even to think. There are people that would like to send you and I to re-education camps so that we can learn how to think properly. In the name of tolerance. In the name of diversity of thought. You see what happens? We do not have the wisdom to manage our anger. We don't have it. We'll become so convinced we're right, we won't even see it. And will become more dangerous in our quest to fight evil than those we assume are perpetrating it. As if the answer to the racism of the past is racism now. We'll just flip it around and now you're the bad one. It's, it's, just, it doesn't, it's not that racism didn't exist. It did. It does. And it's evil. It's, it's the fact that you don't fix it by changing it around to focus on somebody else. It's, it's just not the way. But that's what anger at it does. It lodges in the heart of fools. You can't think clearly when you're angry. Jesus could. You and I ought not to assume we can do that so easily. Don't go on crusades. 
Just don't. It, it's, it's the path to conflict and violence and difficulty and self-righteousness. Don't go on crusades. Don't stay angry. Why not? Because this is passing away. And even if you fix it, it will break again. This is vapor and vanity. All of it. All of it. Enjoy your lot. Love the people in front of you. Quit trying to change the world. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? See how these thoughts just go together? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. How relevant can a text be to our modern times? Why do we think the answer for what's wrong with our country is to go back to the way it was? Beloved, not everything about the past was great. You do realize that, right? And I don't mean to sound condescending, but like, what parts do you want to go back to? Right? We forget. We forget what was bad. Like, I don't really think we should return to a time when women weren't allowed to have their own checking accounts. Or black people weren't allowed to sit in the front of the bus. We shouldn't go back to that. Right? So when we say, when as Christians, we think the answer and, and, and the message we're projecting is it needs to go back to the way it was, it depends on who's saying that. Right? That's why it's dangerous. It clouds the gospel. Christians bemoaning the loss of our culture, right? What do we say? We need to get America back to God. It's not from wisdom that we say this. It's not from wisdom that we pine over the past. Sure, in many ways, in the past, it was better than it is now. I understand that. In many ways, it was, but not in every way. That's the thought process that cuts like a knife, Right into a church's ability to grow and to change and to move forward. But the past was so good. I liked it so much. We, I just loved what we used to do and this thing and that thing. And the Bible tells you straight out, that's not wise. And we do it all the time. Which means our churches are not governed by wisdom. They're governed by nostalgia. And it's a killer. It's a killer. We need a different perspective Pining for the past and unwillingness to let go of traditions, sacred cows, thinking that something is lost if we lose things we used to do. Why would we think that? What changed in Jesus? Right? What changed in Jesus, though? The things we like, the things we prefer, we pine over that because in our foolishness we're so convinced the past was better. Right? This is pervasive now. You see, if you're on social media, you see the pictures. You know, little memes like show a bunch of kids playing in the dirt or something. They'll say, like, I'm so glad that I grew up when we played in the dirt instead of looked at our phones. And, yeah, I mean, I get that. But, like, you're saying, like, we're better than you because we played in the dirt, right? Our lives were better. The past was better. I mean, in that picture, yeah. And, I mean, it was, it was more fun to play in the dirt than it is to stare at a phone. But, like, that wasn't all that was happening. Wasn't just a generation of people playing in the dirt. People still went to work. They still got murdered. They still had to pay bills. Right? It's, it's, we're, it's, it's, we, we remember how we felt and we try to shape truth and reality to recapture or keep that feeling. And the Bible is saying, it's not from wisdom that you do this. It's not. That assumes the world can be held on to, right? That's, that's what it is. We could go back and it would never change. No, 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 it will change. God built the world to change, not to stay the same. To constantly be in a state that disables us from getting a handle on it and trying to control it. We are not given from God the mandate to shape time and space Especially not by our feelings. Do you realize how high you have to hold up your own feelings to demand that traditions never change? Right? I mean, do, do we hear the scripture? I mean, it's, listen, ask a hard question, Sunday night crowd. Ask the hard questions. Is our church set up to grow with new people or is it set up merely to please the people that have always been here? Which is it? 
I know it's not a comfortable question. Right? But do we even, when we're like, I like this, I like that. Okay, what if other people don't? Well, I, I, I go here. I, when, this is not what it's all about. We ought to question the belief that how we were in the past made us better. Or that the past itself was inherently better. The Bible would disagree with that. We're, it's selective memory. And it's selfish memory. Given the fact that death is coming and we're temporary, what sense does it make, Solomon is asking, to pine for the way things used to be? As if they could have been kept. I love those times. They were better. Maybe they were. But even if you go back or bring it back, you can't stay there. It won't remain the same. And even if it becomes like that again, or I just, I'm sorry, I just said that. It, it, it won't remain that way. So why are we pining for the past? And again, I, 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 in one sense, I, I do that too. I, 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 there are, there's music, you know, from the 80s and nostalgia and all that. And I wish sometimes that you could go back. And we all do in some sense. I don't want you to think it's always sinful to think, man, I wish I could go back. That's not, that's not inherently sinful. It's that when we begin to think gladness and contentment and peace would come from returning to a time in the past, we're fooling ourselves, literally. We're fooling ourselves. As much as I love the 80s, I didn't love being on food stamps. You know, I didn't love living in government-subsidized apartments. No thanks, right? But, I mean, I remember the music was cool, you know? I mean, what causes us to pine for the past? Not remembering that nothing here remains the same. If we're a people who refuse to change, we're fools who disagree with God about how the transient nature of life should have more sway over us than our feelings. Will our church embrace this? Right. Will our church embrace this? Or will it resist it to the peril of our witness? Will we continue to, to disagree with God about time and demand it never change to the detriment of our mission to reach others, many of whom don't like things the way that we did. I, I, we don't even question our love of the past. And here's something I hear all the time. I hear this all the time. Yeah, but if, if we do that or don't do that, a lot of people are going to be upset. Tony, a lot of people are going to be upset. Okay. Then what? So do, do you see how it's put forward? If you do that, if you change this, if you go here, a lot of people are going to be upset. Well, who are they? Give me some names, right? But also, that's reason not to change? Oh, man, a lot of people are going to be upset if we don't do that, if we don't have that. A lot of people are going to be upset. Oh, my goodness. What, you can break into my house and kill me while I'm sleeping? Like, what, what does that mean? Right? We're, they're going to be upset. Well, then I, we probably shouldn't move. And I'm paralyzed by that. Paralyzed by that as a pastor. I don't want that. See, I don't want adversity. Right? That's a pastor pretending like the moment is all that matters. You see, I'm not just barking at you. And I, I, I don't, I just, again, a lot of people might be upset, but other people might not be. So why do the people that are upset get to determine what happens? You see, what I'm, where does this come from? Well, it doesn't come from wisdom. It comes from preferences. Right? It just you, you, you can't have your way without ruining someone else's. So we've got to let that go. Right? I've got to let it go. I've got to let it go. I've got to quit living in the past. You know? But look at this. Look, look, look at verse 10 again. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Notice that verse doesn't even consider what the past was like. There's no exception to verse 10. As though that would change the statement. If there were really good times, then yes, it would make sense to pine over them. No, no, no. It is not from wisdom that you say, man, why, why were the former days better than these? Right? That's never wise. 
according to the Bible. What a verse. Look, look at verse 11 in light of that. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. Beloved, do you see it? Right. Listen to 520 again quickly. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Wisdom is useful if it has an inheritance. Wisdom is useful if it's fixed on the end rather than the beginning. If it's fixed beyond the sun, not under it. That's why the exhortation is to see the sun. Remember that this is not forever. Remember that the day of death is better than the day of birth. That's what it means to see the sun. You're under it. Right? That's what it means that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The wise can see the sun. The wise are remembering the transient nature of life. It's not a sad, desperate longing to die that Solomon is calling us to. It's an awareness of how transient we are, transient we are, and these lives and these times are, so that death, the end of all mankind, that can't be avoided, is welcomed when it comes, rather than foolishly and worthlessly avoided. Verse 12, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Isn't that ironic? A life that doesn't foolishly deny death, or foolishly deny how temporary and transient and unsatisfying it is under the sun, that life is worth living. Ironically, the wisdom of not denying death preserves our lives. Rather than them being a waste where we only live for the moment, for the gain, we live in faith and in joy through which we can actually serve, rather than oppress the others in our lives. Where death is welcomed... And notice where this concludes as his teaching here comes full circle with 6.12. Now let me read 13 and 14 here and then I'm going to go back and read 6.12. He says at the end of these Proverbs, consider the work of God. So now we know, okay, so the whole time that's what he was talking about. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He just answered his question from 6.12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Nobody. Nobody. In fact... Pondering that made Solomon realize that God had made sure he can't find out what will be after him. At the end of the day, who knows what will happen, good or bad. So enjoy the good when it happens. Mourn the bad. God is present with us in both. In both. He's the maker of prosperity and adversity. Without the wisdom literature, if we have a bad day, we tend to think God's against us. And Solomon is telling you, no, don't think that. Good and bad are a part of life under the sun. Don't live so transactionally. You're my child. I save you. You belong to me, whether you live or whether you die. And under the sun, sometimes it will be good and sometimes it will be bad. Just embrace it. Right? You can't live in such a way that you can tell the future and map out your path. Just live. We don't know why today is what today is, really. We, we don't know why bad happened or why good happened. That's not in the cards. Sometimes we do, right? Sometimes there are consequences or benefits of choices. I, Solomon isn't denying that. I'm not denying that. that there, there's a principle here for life that all in all, we don't know why good comes or why bad comes. So just embrace both because God is present and he's the maker of both. That, that's a whole different way to look at adversity, right? A whole different way. God has made the world crooked. Beloved, it's crooked. You and I cannot straighten it out. We can't buck the system. We can't. So just embrace it. Your God made it.
That's the way it is. Again, I'm not saying like that's the way it is like when someone you love dies. Well, that's the way it is. No, 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 no. I'm saying knowing that is the way to not be killed by it and crushed by it. That's all. God made the world crooked precisely so you and I wouldn't be able to know the future. Beyond the reality of death, right? That's the one thing we know is coming. God has made our world crooked so that we can't figure it out. His design means the only way to sanity in this world, in the midst of its sorrow and trouble and evil, is to see everything, prosperity and adversity, from the perspective of his sovereignty. Where Solomon goes with this text is right into, that's right, God has made it this way. That's why it is this way. God has made the world this way, and if that's the case, then there is a point to it all. Right? It's not only meaningless. The goal of our lives is not in this life. That's what we have to learn to believe. The goal is beyond the sun, not under it. We were made to long for an escape, beloved. Since it's God who has structured our world the way it is, we can learn to have peace even in adversity, even in the bad and difficult things that happen to us. There isn't a secret to manipulating this life into something that will last other than to say that the secret is embracing the God who made us and who made the world crooked so that our perspectives are shaped by a Savior who loves us, that's who made it crooked, rather than by our own ability to gain. And by that, we'll make the world yield. God is present when we rejoice. He is present when we suffer. His answer is not to make us think He deals in one and not in the other. His answer is for us to know and believe that he's sovereign over it all. And he is the path to peace, beloved. He is the path to peace. He is the path to life, even in death. Just abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus.